pastor's message this morning is entitled, How Do You Succeed in Planning? And the verses are taken from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15, verses 22 to 33. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you, but now having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way toward you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them Verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this, and I have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea and that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may be with you refreshed now the God of peace be with you all. Amen and amen. I don't really know what kind of mood I was in yesterday when I decided on that title. You, it, there is a lot of irony in it, just so you know. This is not going to be a how-to sermon uh, necessarily, but there is some truth and there is some realities uh, how we can make our goals succeed. And we will see what those are. They may not be things, or it may not be something that you have thought of. 2021 has come to an end. And with the change of a new year, often comes reflection on the year that passed. I think most of you have seen all the lists of 2020, right? The best of or worst of lists. That's the reflection part. It's good to reflect on what's passed. Some discouragement is bound to come to us when we realize that the year didn't go according to plan. In fact, I think that really is what leads us on, at least most people on, with a sense of optimism when it comes to the new year. Uh, last year didn't go as expected. This year's going to be better. 2022 is now going to be better than 2021. And so, we tend to look at the new year as a time of transition, a time of change. In reality, perhaps it's just a movement from one month to the next, one day to the next, one hour to the next, one minute and one second, and time is going on, isn't it? Time is moving ahead as God has ordained it. Christ did not return last year, and so time moves forward according to God's purposes. I believe that Christians... You and I, if we are in Christ, must always land on a sense of optimism in life. Even presently, 
in our current condition with COVID-19 in the world, with all of the open and seemingly increasing wickedness of our nation and the people around us, even as we see many believers openly and proudly professing, maybe popular believers, professing that they have left the faith, I still believe Christians should be optimistic. Our future, in fact, our present, is grounded on Christ's triumphant victory over sin, over our enemies, over the domain of darkness, over anything that could rise up against God and against his people. Christ has already won that battle. And we know that has been won because he's been raised from the dead. The resurrection means that we should never be confounded in a sense. We should never be depressed to the degree that we lack optimism as Christians. Now we go through seasons. Last year for me, 2021 was a year that I probably preached less than any other previous year that I've been a pastor because of illnesses, random illnesses that I didn't see coming and I wouldn't have expected it, and yet that was part of what God had planned for that year. And yet in that, God in Christ was reigning. He was still at the right hand of God the Father above all rulers and authorities, and he has given us his Holy Spirit as the earnest of our future inheritance and the Truth that you will be conformed to the image of Christ is not in question if you are in Christ by faith now. That means there is no separation between us and God. That means there is nothing that anyone can do to upset our position in Christ and the love of God for us cannot be broken. And all of that means we should be optimistic when we face the year ahead. But in that optimism, we need to be workers. We need to be diligent. We don't just sit on our hands and say, look what God has won for us. We're saved, and so we just watch life dissipate in front of us in our optimism. No, we're called to work. We're called to be active as God has called us, and he's gifted us in the ministry. If you to go back to Romans 13, everyone here has a role to play in the active and ongoing work of the ministry of this church. If you're part of this local body of believers, you have a part to play, a role. You have gifts to exercise. We have a greater commission to exercise, to go into the all, all the world and make disciples. And we do that collectively as we grow and as we outwork our gifts among ourselves. We don't sit on our hands. Whatever we do, we do with all our might, the scripture says, and we do it unto the Lord, not unto men. And so we go and we press on. The apostle says, I press on toward the mark. Now, this is a man who worked probably more tirelessly than any other person in the New Testament, perhaps other than our Lord, with the engagement of his ministry and his calling. The reason why I say that about Paul is because we know so much about him in the New Testament. He's written half of the books of the New Testament, and we see much of that history written in Acts as well. He worked tirelessly, and he says, I'm not done until I'm done. 
How do you know you're done? You're not here any longer. That's how. I press on toward the mark. The thing that for which Christ has called me to, that's what I'm about. Until it's finished. My work is finished and I'm at home with him. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now I said last sermon about our text in Romans here that I believe this entire closing portion of Romans is meant to induce God's people first to reverence everything that's come before it in the epistle. So when we read this chapter, chapter 15, it ought to send us back to the rest of the epistle and say, that's the word of God, that's the truth, that's the grounding of our relationship with God, the saving relationship that we have with him through Jesus Christ, the gospel has come to us and it's revealed there and its power and how that unfolds in the Christian life is all reflected in this chapter as it tells us to go back and say, listen to what's come before it. But it also informs us about ongoing labors built upon that gospel and its application for our life. And this continues today. Paul's, first of all, this morning in verses 22 through 24 Paul is poised for a new mission field. As I just quoted in Philippians, he's not done yet. He's written this greatest letter ever written. He doesn't know that, probably. That's what we call it. And he's not done. He's poised for a new mission field. Verses 22 through 24. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. The reason why Paul was hindered in coming to the church at Rome was not due to his laziness. We all need to hear that. I need to hear that. It was rather due to his faithfulness. His faithfulness in going as far as a thousand miles between Jerusalem and Illyricum. He already had mentioned that back in verse 19. Now that's, that's one missionary journey, you could imagine that. A thousand miles there and back. One missionary journey. This is his third he's on. Imagine that. I hate traveling to the mainland on an airplane. Paul has spent 15 years traveling. Reminds me of Abraham in some ways. God tells Abraham, wealthy man, blessed man, he tells him you're never going to have a home on this earth. <laughs> we, we often don't realize that. He tells Abraham, go keep walking all the way around Canaan. <laughs> you're not going to have a place to, to, to really lay your head for a while. This is similar to Christ's ministry too. These were moving working, operating people that were going, and Paul was one of them. He was always busy with the work that God had called him to do, and that busyness had left him without this fulfilled desire to come to Rome. He wanted to come to them. He desired to come to them for some time. His, come, his desire at this point in his ministry to come to Rome was sort of in passing. You see there in verse 24, I hope to see you in passing 
as I go to Spain. You see, his ultimate purpose was to go to Spain because in Spain, the gospel had not been preached. In Rome, their testimony was known. They had heard the gospel in Rome. They had heard it and they had applied it and the gospel had great effect on them by the grace of God that it was known throughout the world, their testimony. And so it's in passing he goes to Spain and this is a second purpose in going from Rome to Spain to be helped by the Roman church in his going. Now this help is most likely in help of physical needs. How did Paul get from where he was going to where he needed to go? He was a missionary as we think of an itinerary itinerant missionary. He was being sent, and he needed physical needs to do that. And so this is probably what he means by this, to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And certainly that must mean, as we go back to chapter 1, this mutual edification that we see there in verse 12. For I long to see you, he says to this church, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, we'll get back to Paul's future goal, but there it's laid out. I long to come to you. That's my plan, is to come to you so that by coming to you, I might have a way to get to Spain, but that we might be mutually edified in that time we have to spend together. That's his future goal. But now we see, secondly, his present purpose. He's got something between there, if you think about it in steps, right? And oftentimes that's the way we make goals and we make plans. We have steps. I want to do this, but before I do that, I have to get this done. Well, this is what he has to do before he goes to Rome. Verses 25 through 28. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. That word aid is a word that's related to diakonos, where we get the term servant. Di- uh, where's the deacon here? I, I saw Bobby. He was here. He's here somewhere. There he is. Sorry, Bobby. Don't have my. The deacon, the diaconate, comes from that same word. It means servant, to bring aid, to bring service to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what I have been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Verse 28 makes at least this much clear. While Paul's future plans regarded going to Spain by way of Rome, his immediate work was first to go to Jerusalem. And that to bring, as he says, aid to the saints. And that in the form of material blessing, physical goods, probably food, money to buy things. You see, in Jerusalem, it's been well documented that the saints there were already forbidden to trade, to buy, sell in the marketplace. The Christian, the believing Jews there were scorned. They were scorned by Rome first of all, who didn't like any Jews, but then they were scorned by their own people. You see, they were following Messiah. Most of the Jews did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't have a place in the synagogue. Imagine that. You lose your livelihood, you lose your trade, 
the things that are mentioned there in Revelation about the mark of the beast, buying, selling, and trading, they already lost that stuff in Jerusalem. They didn't have their physical well-being was not in place. They didn't have their physical needs taken care of. And so we know that from other portions of Scripture, Acts, Corinthians, Philippians, that Paul was going around to churches saying there are needs that your brothers and sisters have in Jerusalem and you ought to give to their needs. These were churches in Gentile regions that Paul mentions here. He says they are Macedonia and Achaia. These are churches in Gentile regions. And he says when using a familiar principle here, that these Gentile region churches who had, yes, they had Jewish believers in them, but primarily were Gentiles, owed their Jewish believing brethren physical goods, these physical goods. And he uses a very similar logic here to what we see. In fact, it's the same logic to what we see in 1 Corinthians 9. Go to 1 Corinthians 9. This is not just a a lone portion of, of or a principle that we don't see anywhere else, this idea of the greater demanding the lesser, the greater being the spiritual demanding the lesser the physical. Here's what he says about his own right to receive physical remuneration, physical help as a result of his spiritual ministry. Verse 7, we'll start there. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is, for, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should, not, should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? You see, he's arguing there's a logic Greater to the lesser. The greater is the spiritual, the lesser is the material. And it's the same greater to lesser logic that Paul employs with regard to these needs of the church in Jerusalem. The Gentiles have received a spiritual blessing which was not theirs to begin with. It has come to them, to us, through the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through the Jewish people, salvation is of the Jews. And Paul is saying that because we have, have a part now in this promises, these, material, or these spiritual blessings, first promised to them that we as Gentiles have a responsibility, a debt, to meet the physical needs of our brethren, those who are trusting in Christ, who are of the Jewish uh, heritage, their ethnicity, that we have a responsibility to meet their needs when they have needs. Now, what is Paul applying here? He's applying the law of love here. He is saying, in effect, 
that our brethren, your brothers and sisters, who go without physically, if you have the means and the capabilities to meet those needs, you ought, you have a duty to do so. Not just that you may, or that if you feel like it, you should, which you should feel like it, but that you ought to. What does he say here? He uses the term owe. You owe it to them. Let me say this in general. Love among the brethren is owed. You say, how can it be love? Doesn't it have to be willing? Yes, it has to be willing. But that doesn't mean it's not owed. Why is it owed? Because God so loved you. So also ought ye also love one another. Not you may, you ought to love one another. And that love is shown, Paul is saying here, in the gifts and the offerings that were given, as he says willingly. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, you go First 1 John 3 and 4, you go to James 2, all of this stuff ought to be willingly done. And in fact, from those churches, they gave willingly even out of their poverty, Paul says, to meet these needs. What, what goes through your mind when you see a brother or sister in need? Oh, they just want my stuff. They just want what I work so hard for. I hope that, I, may I say this, from this church and my own knowledge of what happens in this church, that is not the way that you live your lives. When I see needs in this church coming from whatever region, in the diaconate fund, whatever, this church is quick. I, I've never heard so much as a debate about meeting the needs of the saints in this church, and I commend you for it. And it ought to be that way. It ought to be that way, and it ought to continue to be that way. And God is praised when things are that way. Why? Because it demonstrates that God's love abides in you. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, that's what you're doing. That's what we're doing. How does God's love abide in him? 1 John 3.17 That Paul prioritizes this aid or service to the church at Jerusalem must once and for all demonstrate indeed that he loved his people according to the flesh. But these are not merely his people according to the flesh. Remember what we read there in Romans chapter 10? It's my heart's desire that they might be saved. How much love must Paul have had had for his people, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who believed in Christ. Evidently, it was this much love. It was enough love to keep him from going directly to Rome. You know, Paul was an evangelist. He was a missionary. He was an apostle. It came to my mind as I was studying this, didn't they have deacons that they could have sent this money with? Why would Paul have to go? Why would he have to go? 
And yet I think if you ask Paul that, he would say, love constrains me to go to see this done. Now in the text, he says, it's important that I go. Perhaps there was some validity with Paul going from the Gentiles. He's the messenger, he's the preacher, he's the minister, the apostle to the Gentiles. And he is coming from the Gentiles to the church at Rome saying, you are one church. I, I imagine there's gospel implications all over this if you analyze this. That you are one body and these Gentile believers over here are your brethren, Jewish believers over here. And even though I'm the the apostle to the Gentiles, I'm your brother, Jewish believers. And he brings it there. In all, we know that he loved his people greatly. And we cannot fault him for going to Jerusalem. And why would we, you might ask? Why wouldn't we? Well, because this present priority in Paul would keep him from his future plan. It would keep him from ever accomplishing that future goal. Because he goes to Jerusalem, he never goes to Spain, as far as we know. There's no record that Paul ever made it to Spain. Something he desired greatly and planned for. Paul's love constrained him. And that love ought always to take priority in our hearts and on our plans. Love for one another, love for Christ, love for his people. Third, as I mentioned, Paul's unmet expectation. We see verse 29 through 33. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. It's quite a statement of confidence, isn't it? I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf for this end that follows in verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. He had an idea that this was going to be a threat. Going there would threaten his freedom. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Now, without delaying this story, I've already mentioned it. He never goes to Spain. Instead, he goes back to Jerusalem, and he is arrested. He spends two years in prison at Caesarea. He pleads for an audience with Caesar, and that's granted to him, and he's sent to Rome, not as a free man, but as a prisoner. As far as we know, that's where he lives out the rest of his life, and that's where he eventually is martyred in Rome as a prisoner. What do we say about Paul's statement in verse 29? I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. There's a few things we can say. First of all, Paul is not a positivist. Now, I get flack because I say things like positivism cannot, in the final analysis, help you. And people say, well, we shouldn't be negative, right? as I'm so often accused of being, right? Glass half empty sort of a guy. Craig, what's that amen over there? Uh, Let me say it this way. Positive, positivity is not absolute. 
I, I don't think it's a good idea. If you go about your business daily and go, oh, I'm just going to fail miserably today. I don't, I'm not trying to say that you should do that. But positivity does not make anything, in fact, happen. The will of God is what, a comp- what in fact, is absolute. Paul very clearly asserts in verse 29 with positive language that he will come to Rome. Not only that, but he concludes in that confident assertion that the supporting prayers of the saints would be, he urges them to pray towards that end. I'm going to come to you and I'm asking you to pray towards that end. He's very confident. And he's including the prayer of the saints, of this well-beloved, faithful body of believers to help support him in that end. But he doesn't practice or preach the power of positive thinking here, nor is godly prayer here evidence or the prayer of the faith or prayer of faith based on positivism. Rather, he grounds his hope in verse 32. What does it say there? So that by God's will. I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. According to that verse, his certainty of coming is not equal to knowing the secret will of God. You can be positive about something. Hey, I've trained hard at this. I believe I'll do a good job at this test. Children, you work hard at your exams. You memorize what you need to do. You learn the right uh, diagrams and whatever you're, you're studying for. And you should be encouraged that when you come to testing day, you'll know what you need to know. And depend on the will of God to know it. You don't say, like James tells us, tomorrow I'm going to go into the marketplace. I've got all these great things to sell. I know people need them. I'm going to go there and I'm going to sell them. And I'm going to buy and sell and get gain. I know it because I've worked so hard. I know people need it. I've got all these buyers lined up. No, you say, if it's the will of God, I'm going to go there tomorrow. I want to be a good husband tomorrow to my wife. I want to be there tomorrow. And if it's the will of God, I will. It's not to say, oh, I can't do anything about it. No, we work while God is at work in us. That's why Paul is not sitting on his hands. That's why he's not saying, oh, I probably will never get to you. No, he says, I'm going to come to you. Pray for me. Because if it's God's will, I will. And will be refreshed. This is the way that our lives ought to be lived out. The way that our planning ought to be planned out. But there's also another aspect here that we see, another application. What about the discouragement that we often feel? You know... Who loves to be doing something good, have plans that are good, and then because you did something good, the good plans don't come to fruition. You see what Paul has done here? He has a plan to go to Spain where the gospel has never been preached. He's got a calling of the apostle to the Gentiles. He's got everything beneath him to to desire, to love, to see the church at Rome. He has this great goal of going there. 
and he loves the saints at Jerusalem. And so first, he must go there. And because he goes there, he never goes to Spain. And so oftentimes, we have discouragement because the goals that we set out, we don't have to have this vaunted sort of goal. This is a big goal. Maybe it's just something good. Last year, did you have a goal last year? You have a, what are those called? <laughs> resolution. The words escape you, right? A resolution. How many of those did you succeed at? Did you fail at some of them? All? That's usually the case. What, 79% of them never are successful? Does that mean you shouldn't make goals or make good resolutions? No. But where do you... Where do you find your hope when your goals or your achievements or your desires don't come to fruition? It's probable that Paul is writing this epistle during his third missionary journey while at Corinth. From Corinth, he travels through Macedonia, perhaps gathers that offering there, Troas, Miletus, on his way to Jerusalem. And just before arriving in Jerusalem at Caesarea, he runs into this prophet named Agabus. Now, this is, think about Paul's desires here. Think about his goals. Here's what Agabus does. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. As the chapter goes on, people are pleading with Paul, Don't go to Jerusalem. Other prophets are getting visions by the Holy Spirit. You will be arrested if you go there. And he is. Before the chapter ends in Acts 21, Paul's arrested. And as far as we know, never set free again. What are your plans for 2022? What are your hopes and what do you pray for? I think this text teaches us how to face plans, good plans. Good objection, uh, good objects, good ideas, good resolutions. With desire and effort and also with the knowledge that we don't know the secret will of God and how they will come to pass. In the first place, the text before us is not about Paul. It's about God. It's about God and the way he works, isn't it? What does it tell us about God? Well, Paul's entire focus of his ministry in this epistle is based on the message of God, the gospel concerning his son. This is the basis for his letter, and it's the basis for his activities. And as an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is the basis for his desire to go to Spain to preach to them. It's the basis for his love for the saints. It's the ground of his hope and his tireless ministry. It's God. It's Christ. It's the gospel. God is the center of what he is about, what he's doing. Not just what Paul will be doing, but what God has done is the center for Paul. The redemption that God has won for Paul through Christ, through giving his son, is central to Paul's activity. That's why he works tirelessly. 
God is also seen to be the central basis for his passion, his love. He preached so that they would know and glorify God through Christ unto hope and everlasting life. Verse 21, he preaches so that the un, those who had never heard would hear. Hear what? About Christ. It's about Christ. That's his motivation. What's your motivations for your goals? You want to lose weight? Do it for the glory of God. You want to be a better father? Do it for the glory of God. For the name of Christ. You want to be a better businessman? Do it for the glory of God. Whatever your calling is, a church member, do it for the glory of God. Depend on the gospel to see that it comes to pass. And when you do that, if you don't achieve those things, but you do them for the glory of God, do you fail? You don't fail. You don't fail. His goal, in verse 32, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. You see, even in Paul's, in the laying down of his objects and his goals, his future aspirations, it's the will of God that is central to him. When that happens, we can be assured that we don't fail. It's God who is central to this text. It's God who is central to our planning, therefore. What do you plan out? Make God the center of it. Very few of us will accomplish the goals that we set out for us. All of them. If you have lofty goals, it's hard to do that, to, to set them out and to succeed in all of them. But if you live for the glory of God, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, even as God is at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure, you don't work in vain. Secondly, even the good that we do and would do for God must not deter us from recognizing his wisdom and power to alter our plans. You see, God being God is the means of our hope. Even if that means we don't get to do what we planned, after seeing how passionate Paul was about going to Spain, being warned of the believers there in Caesarea that he was going to be arrested, here's what Paul said in Acts 21, 12 through 14. When we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. All of your plans come to nothing. If you can say, let the will of the Lord be done, you do not fail. Let the will of the... Why? Because that's the essence of our faith. What did Christ teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul believed Jesus and Peter, even Peter, when he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Bless, Paul would face imprisonment because of doing right. Now, it's important that we remember that persecution and various trials may mark an end to all the good designs that we plan to do for God's glory. 
How do you rate success? According to scripture, the life of faith means that we see God at the center of all things. Did Paul not going to Spain mean the end of the, the spreading of the gospel? No. Hey, how about coronavirus? Did that mean the end of worship? Tried <laughs> for a while, right? How has God sustained us? Many of us might get COVID. It's going around now, this other variant. It's going around like a cold. It's easy to get. Will that cease God's purpose in the world? How about the wickedness of our country? How about your own failures and sin last year? Will that separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? If you're in Christ, he will sanctify you. Let the will of God be done. As we're planning this year out, may we make plans. May we plan it for the glory of God. Everything we set our hearts to do, may we do it with all our might. May we be active in the church. May we exercise the gift, gifts God has given us in the body of Christ and for the edification, for the promise, the proclamation of the gospel, for the growth of of sanctification among the brethren. And if God limits all of the designs that we set, may his will be done. May his will be done. Why can we say that? Because we know he's good. We know that his will is what ought to always be done, even when it doesn't look like it. And so my prayer is that we will work out, all of us, together, our own salvation with fear and trembling. Because we know that God is at work within us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And I just want to end by reading the benediction that Paul writes there in verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all under any circumstances. Amen.